Well, this is it. Our last episode of our first season. And I think it's been a good run so far. Yeah, I kind of can't believe we made it through this year and rolled out the first season of this brand new podcast. Yeah, you know, it's been a crazy year. And we haven't actually dealt directly in this podcast with some of the major issues our country has been facing. So I wanted to take the opportunity in this last episode to talk to someone from rural America who might challenge some of the expectations we put on people in the polarized environment we're in. So I spoke with Ron Sidner, who remains the only black person ever to have managed the Jefferson Davis State Historic Site in Fairview, Kentucky. If I'd have let my emotions get involved in an African-American, then it would have been a whole different scene there. Yeah, I've driven by the Davis Monument many times. It's a giant concrete obelisk that looks like the Washington Monument, and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Or the middle of everywhere. Uh, (laughs) Right. So Fairview is the birthplace of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, which is why this huge monument is there in the first place. And from what I know, it's a place for real Civil War history buffs, but it also might attract Confederate sympathizers and white nationalists. Yeah, that's kind of what I've heard. So why would Ron take this job? And I even had friends, you know, tell Mr. Mann, said, you're gonna go up there and they're gonna hang you up there. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. And getting to know him, I started to get an idea about what it was like being a black man with his own fears managing a major Confederate park. He spent a lot of time telling me about what he understands the truth behind why the Civil War happened, who Jefferson Davis really was, what the Confederate flag really stood for, etc., etc., and a lot of what he said really surprised me. I knew that there was a lot of misconceptions out there, a lot of things that people believed on both sides of the coin. We'll meet a black man who, despite his beliefs, managed a major Confederate monument for years. And we'll ask, how did he do it? This is Middle of Everywhere, telling big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Austin Carter. And I'm Ariel Lavery. And today, black overseer of a Confederate monument. I was born in Russellville, Kentucky. But um, from the age of two, I grew up in Pembroke, Kentucky, a small farming community. Ron's family was not necessarily full of history buffs, but... It always fascinated me. And I, as far back as the age of 11, uh, any books or anything that had anything to do with history, I was all over it. When I was in the second grade, I was going to a, a, an all-black school that was before uh, desegregation. So some of the... Uh, lessons that I learned uh, about Black Americans and history sparked my interest. He got a lot of inspiration from learning about different historical figures. George Washington Carver. I was interested in him because our school was named after him. Frederick Douglass was another big one. Marcus Garvey was, was another big one. In 1965, when Ron and his classmates were integrated into a white school, he noticed a change in the way history was taught. In the all-black school, we we had the traditional history that was taught, but we also had uh, more of the African-American push in in history and what African-Americans did in history, whereas 
when the school was integrated, that part of the history was not there. And it wasn't until I got to college that uh, I really came full circle with it. After active duty in the Marines, he got into UC Berkeley and decided to focus again on African-American history. When I got my history degree, it was in American history, but it was from the beginning of America to through the Civil War. I took classes from Africa during that period, from England during that period, and of course the United States during that period, because I wanted to know how each one of those countries and the people were thinking and what they were thinking about for this adventure, if you will, that made this country and, 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 and what it is today. He found himself with some disparity between himself and his classmates, not because of his race, but because of his age. He started his first year when he was 45. The first day of the class, he played a sound bite of music and wanted to know if anybody in the class could name the uh, song in the group. And uh, I don't know if it's unfortunate or fortunate, but I was the only one in the class that recognized the song in the group. And I, and I guess that was because of my age. It was um, the OJs and Ship Ahoy. I was lucky to have a father who introduced me to the OJs, but I see what he's saying there. So how did he get from studying history at Berkeley to being the first and only black manager of one of the most prominent Confederate monuments? Well, he actually never really planned to pursue this as a career. Originally, he wanted to be a teacher. When I was at Berkeley and when I graduated from Berkeley and uh, I applied to the credentialing program because I wanted to be a a history teacher, and they told me that I was short one lower division class, which was poli-sci two. So when I told my wife I had to go back to school for one more semester, she said, said, no, 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 no. Uh, You've been schooling for four years. Get a job. Oh, that's too bad. That's such a common story for graduates who want to pursue something a little outside of their degree path. Yeah, that's true. You know, but his desire to teach didn't go away. As far as your eyes can see Men, women, and baby slaves Coming to the land of liberty Okay, so how did he end up managing the monument? Um, tell me a little bit about how you got the job at the monument like did you <laughs> oh, oh that's just a funny story uh i was the assistant manager at lake barkley state resort park when the job first came open and and me and the park manager was talking and i told him i said you know i said i want to apply for that job and he said you ought to i said no there's no way they'll put a black person in that job and so we laughed it off and we let it go well about a year later the job was still open, and my boss from Frankfurt, she came down, and um, because of my military background, the fact that I was a history major, she thought that I'd be a better fit to go to Jefferson Davis. Well, she didn't understand the historical context of what she was asking, and so I started laughing. And she goes, no, no, Ron, I'm serious. I said, I understand. I said, it's, a, it's an inside joke. And it didn't take long for the news to travel about the first black manager of this Confederate monument. The day after I was there, the local newspaper came down and interviewed me. And um, when the paper came out, the heading was African-American managing the birthplace of the president of the Confederate States of America. Well, that thing shot across the AP 
and I got calls from radio stations and, and uh, newspapers, even the New York Times. Wanted to know how and why. Not everyone in the Kentucky Park System was as ignorant of the potential implications of putting a black man in charge of this monument. The commissioner of parks, he called, he, oh, he, oh, he got upset when she did it. And the commissioner called me and goes, look, Ron, he goes, if you have any problems down there, you call me right away because I'm not going to put up with it. I said, sir, and I started laughing. And he said, Ron, I'm serious. I said, sir, I know you're serious. I said, but you got to look at it from my standpoint. I said, you're three hours away. I said, if something happens, by the time you get here, it's all over with. <laughs> Man, that's a scary suggestion for your boss's boss to be making, but it's totally a realistic possibility. I know there are some incredibly violent white extremists who might take issue with a black park manager at a site that they would hold dear. Oh, yeah. But his hiring for this monument was truly trend-shattering. He learned just how rare it was for a black person to be in this line of employment in Kentucky when he went to an annual conference for parks and historical organizations around the state. There's an organization that they're all members of, and that organization has a conference every year. And everybody had to get up and introduce themselves. And when I got up to introduce myself, all of them almost said, they said oh, we know who you are. So I didn't have to introduce myself. <laughs> Yeah. And mm-hmm. how many other African Americans were in that room introducing themselves? Um, I was the only one. But I was the, at that time was the only one designated as a park manager out of 52 parks. And Ron says that since he's now retired, there are no black park managers in the state of Kentucky. Wow. And what about at the park? How many black employees were there? When I got there, the uh, maintenance guy was was black. He had been there for 20 years. And other state administrators expressed their own surprise at his hiring. And and the state, you know, they also got on my boss because when I was in the Marine Corps, I was uh, the platoon commander for snipers. And they told us that we can't believe you put a sniper in the tower. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But I never had a problem. The community accepted me with open arms, and I mean, we were one happy little family. I had, I had a great time there. Some visitors that would come in, and when they found out that I was a manager, they'd get upset and they'd leave. Some visitors was, would come in, and they found out I was a manager, they'd start laughing and leave. <laughs> Some visitors, I had a couple of old ladies, they were probably in their mid to late 80s. And when they found out I was the manager, they wanted my autograph and they wanted me to put on there the dates that I became the manager because they wanted to be able to tell their grandkids they knew me, who I was and when. When we come back, we'll hear what Ron taught at the park and some unexpected interactions he had with park visitors. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. When we left, Ron had the new job as park manager. 
which people reacted to in a variety of ways. <laughs> right. And if you remember, Ron wanted to teach history after graduating. So he kind of came to this new job with a mind to bring his knowledge of history to the monument. I knew that um, there was a lot of misconceptions out there, a lot of things that people believed on both sides of the, the coin. And so I believed that my job there would be more of a teaching. He realized fairly quickly that much education was needed as he was watching how people conducted themselves around the monument. What do you mean? Like people were parading their support for the Confederacy or something? You know, actually, surprisingly, the opposite. This one young mother came in with a, a young son, and he was over at the, where we had the flags, the, the small flags on the wooden sticks that you could buy. And he was looking at the uh, the battle flag, which most people uh, mischaracterize as a Confederate flag. And so uh, his mother walked over to him and gently moved him over to the American flag and said, wouldn't you rather have this? I knew then that there needed to be a lot more education than than anything else. Why did he see that mother's reaction as problematic? Yeah, I was confused about that, too. It seems like a reaction a lot of people in this country would have if their young child was gravitating toward what many call the rebel flag. But he explained to me what he was talking about through a conversation he had with another man visiting the park who said that he was embarrassed by what he thought was the Confederate flag. So I asked him, I said, well, why are you embarrassed by that flag? And he said, because of what it represents. And, and I asked him, I said, well, what does it represent? And he told me it represented the era of slavery and and racism and and I said well I said um, you know the battle flag and I showed him the battle flag I said the battle flag was a flag that uh, different units carried and it had their unit designation on it and then I showed them the three confederate flags I was really surprised by all this I didn't know there were three different confederate flags well maybe it's because I grew up in the south but I did know that there was a difference between the confederate national flags and the Confederate battle flag. So the first national Confederate flag is what we are known as the Stars and Bars. The second Confederate flag was called the Stainless Banner, and the third Confederate flag was called the Stained Banner. Or as some people call it, the Bloodstained Banner because of the red bar at the edge of the flag. When they tell me that the Confederate flag represents racism and all this stuff, and I said, well, listen, I said the Confederate flag existed for five years. The flags that they're calling the Confederate flag today is not the Confederate flag. There are certainly more nuances to the history of the Confederate flag than most people know. But I have to be honest, I'm still kind of taken aback when I hear him seem to be defending what the flags really stood for and negating that the flag today represents racism for some people. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I think this would be tricky for a lot of people to digest. I did needle him about this because I just couldn't imagine that a black person would be able to look at that flag without any negative emotions. When I see pickup trucks flying it on the back or they got it in the back window and or they've got a, a, a license plate up front with it on there. Um, yeah, um, there's a fear factor there. And then there's also a question in the back of my mind. What do they think it means? So here's Ron trying to educate people about the Civil War, but at the same time, it exposes him to people who may be violently opposed to his being. 
and it's really kind of brave. That's a really good point. But I continued to be surprised at the history lessons he gave me, like his explanation for why so many people in the South actually fought in the war. It was、uh, taxation without representation because of that; those taxes placed on Southern goods, and now they couldn't make a living for their family. That's why they fought. You also had, and, and a lot of people disputed, but you had blacks that fought in the Confederacy as well, and they they fought for freedom. Which, as strange as that sounds, if they supported the North and the South won, their condition would be a whole lot worse than what it is at that time. But if they fought for the South and supported the South, and if the South won, then their condition would improve a great deal. So yeah, they were fighting for self-preservation. It's interesting that Ron has that attitude toward the poor Southerners who fought on the side of the Confederacy. It would be easy to say that they fought for the South and thus they supported slavery. Yeah, that's true. And just wait until you hear him talk about Jefferson Davis, about his biography. In the first sixty years of the nineteenth century, he he was known as a statesman. He was a war hero. Davis, as a senator and the Secretary of War, was the things that he did、uh, in those capacities that made him stand out. Now, when he was in the Senate, Davis argued against succession. He did not want the South to succeed, and which made a lot of Southerners mad. But you got to understand, Davis created the United States Army. He knew what that army was capable of, and he knew it would be a bloodbath. He was called the reluctant successionist. When、um, Mississippi succeeded, he knew、uh, the cause was up. After the state seceded, Davis returned to Mississippi. He was home with his wife when a letter came for him stating that he was the Confederate state's choice for president. And Davis said that it felt like somebody had dropped a big rock on him because that's not what he wanted. He believed that his country was calling on him. And so he had no choice but to do what his country was asking him to do. Yeah, I actually read a biography of Jefferson Davis、uh, about a decade ago, so I remember some of this information. And really, his life has some kind of fascinating moments outside of just being the president of the Confederacy. Really, I knew none of this. It really made me realize how many versions of history there are out there, and just how uneducated I am about that. Well, we can't all be experts about everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> now you said before the break that Ron had a vision for the park. Yes. So, how did his understanding of history play out in his education plan at the park? I wanted to put put on programs there that showed other aspects of that area, not just. One aspect, the Confederacy side. So I had a reenactor that represented the Cherokee、uh, Nation. His name was Red Hawk. He had all sorts of reenactors of figures that often go overlooked. Then I had the U.S. 12th Color Heavy Artillery Unit. There was the Ladies of Freed, which was a group of black ladies from Washington D.C. One of the ladies was a friend of Mrs. Lincoln, and she was also a friend of Mrs. Davis. So everything he did at the monument was about diversifying people's understanding of history, from the realities of the Confederate flag to all of the communities of people in the region with unique stories of their own. 
And he did this all from the perspective, in his mind, of an objective teacher of history. If I'd have let my emotions get involved being an African-American, then it would have been a whole different scene there. If I let my personal beliefs come into play, I, I probably wouldn't even have taken the job. But I took the job for one reason, that I wanted to find out the truth. All the programming Ron implemented sounds really great, like a really good move for a monument that so many people associate with a dark period of our history. But it still doesn't solve the debate about what should happen with all these Confederate monuments that still stand in our town centers or at government buildings. I mean, we can't put an educator in front of every one of these monuments or statues of Confederate heroes. Well, that's true. But maybe we can retire them to parks like the Jefferson Davis Monument, where they can be put into context. Kind of like what's planned for the statue of Jefferson Davis that was taken out of the Capitol Rotunda in Frankfort, Kentucky. Oh, yeah. What did he think about that happening? I had mixed feelings about that um, because the reason they moved the monument was due to the fact that he was the president of the Confederacy. Well, the monument being placed there had nothing to do with him being the president of the Confederacy. The monument was put there because he was a House of Representatives. He was a war hero. He was a senator. And he was a secretary of war and all the things he did in those capacities. Now, the statue may have been put there for all of Davis's importance as a statesman. But I just want to bring to light here that it was erected by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Hmm. Interesting. And some people might say that proves the statue was more about his Confederate presidency than about his statesmanship. Exactly. As a matter of fact, I was part of, of the committee that was discussing on whether to move it out of there or not. There was a school teacher in that committee and he was was pushing to have it removed because um, he couldn't explain to his students why a monument to the uh, President of the Confederacy was there. But see, they don't teach the Civil War in schools anymore. And when they did, they didn't teach anything about Davis other than he was a president of the Confederacy. You know, as I said earlier, I've always liked U.S. history, and I have read a biography of Davis at one point. But if you don't have a specific interest in history, a lot of facts can get missed by public education. You need to go back and read your history, but don't read the history books that you were given in school. Go and do research and go into primary documents and stuff like that and see how the people were talking and feeling during that time. That's where you get the true history. Ron put this whole thing even more into perspective for me when he brought up the American flag. More atrocities happened under the American flag before the Civil War, during the Civil War, and after the Civil War that was ever enacted upon the Confederate flags. So why isn't the American flag having that stigma placed on it? Because they won. They're not going to put that on their flag because they won. The victors write the history. There's so many strong feelings that get brought up when we talk about the Confederate battle flag or 
or Confederate history or all of it. And as a white Southerner who's had to come to grips with my own relationship to the Confederacy, having ancestors who fought for the Confederacy, it's a really weird feeling that we get when we talk about venerating these images and flags and all of these things. So I don't totally feel that we should just ignore all of those feelings and implications that come from all of this, but I also see the point in trying to place it all within a historical context. I hadn't really put this into proper context for myself about people in your situation. Presenting this version of history and considering how someone like you might feel on a very personal level, it hadn't even been on my mind. But it seems so important to bring these things up with each other. Like, how should we be talking about our country's history to one another? And certainly, we need to keep asking each other, what should we do with all the Confederate monuments? I believe that if those monuments are not on historical sites, they probably should be removed and and moved to a historical site where they're kept in context. What does it do in your mind when you see those in the town square or in front of a government office? What's the message? Well, it sends a message that that their belief system is the belief systems that, that bore out of that era. If the South had a won, we would have known slavery in our time. Slavery would have lasted another hundred years. Davis lived and died believing in slavery. I honestly believe that I would have seen slavery in my time. Well, we don't know what will happen with the hundreds of Confederate monuments sprinkled throughout the rural landscape in the near future, but we'll definitely be watching. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Ariel Lavery, with editorial help from the entire team. That's right, the entire team got together on this one, folks. Our editor is Naomi Starobin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Middle of Everywhere Pod and Twitter at Rural Stories. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.